Section 3 of The Countess of Lowndes Square and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim's Vox 4. The Countess of Lowndes Square and Other Stories by E. F. Benson. Blackmailing Stories, Chapter 2. The Blackmailer of Park Lane continued. It was about twelve o'clock on the Friday morning that a dejected four-wheeler stopped opposite Martin's library, and the ambulatory population of Wardour Street, accustomed to all manner of eccentricities, looked with wonder at the garish figure that emerged. Two hours before, Arthur Waitley had set off from Park Lane with a small portmanteau and had driven to the Charing Cross Hotel, having adjusted moustache and imperial with the aid of a small-looking glass in the cab, and had taken a room for a widower of the name of George Loring, paying for one night's habitation. There he had effected his change of clothes and left the valise containing the outer garments of Arthur Waitley, at present in a state of suspended existence. He entered the library with a strutting martial air, and, as once before, the comfortable old lady looked up from her knitting and asked how she could serve him. I have called for letters and parcels for Mr. George Loring, said Waitley in a falsetto voice, which was the result of diligent practice. But a glance at pigeonhole L showed him that it was empty. Yes, parcel and letter for Mr. George Loring said the old dame. But the parcel was too big to put in the pigeonhole, let alone lifting it, so I put them together somewhere. Deary me, now, where was it? This is a strange way to conduct a public library, said Waitley, forgetting all about the assumed falsetto, that the librarian should not know where she has deposited the property of her subscribers. Mr. Martin would be far from pleased. I am pressed for time, madam, Business in the city. The old lady turned slowly round and beamed on him. And as if I wasn't sitting on it all the time, she said, just for safety, as you may say. There, young man, you'll find it heavy, and the sixpence to pay. A most reasonable charge, madam, said Waitley. And, uh, and can you tell me who left the parcel, what he looked like? She nodded at him. Such a fur coat I never see, she said, and his motor fair stopped the traffic. I didn't take much account of his face, though I would swear to a beard. A shrewd observer, said Waitley, in his most genial tones, and, staggering out of the shop with his parcel, deposited it on his own toe as he stepped into the cab. The pain was severe, and for the moment damped his ecstasy and caused him a loss of self-control. Charing Cross Hotel, you old idiot, was his unjustifiable direction to his cabman. As he drove there, he tore open the note. It ran as follows. Dear sir, you have me completely in your power, and I send the money you demand. Kindly forward at once the documentary evidence you speak of. Faithfully yours, Peebles. Again, he felt vaguely disappointed. The fish had given him less play than he hoped, 
he had but towed its sulking carcass to land. But, then, he did not know that there followed him, threading the intricacies of traffic close behind him, a taxicab in which was sitting a quiet-looking gentleman with pince-nez. Its destination also appeared to be Charing Cross Hotel. The hall porter opened the door of his cab, and Waitley indicated his parcel. Move that into the bureau, if you'll be so kind, he said. It contains a, a model, a metal model, and is heavy. I'm going upstairs to change my clothes and will be down again in ten minutes. Less time than that was sufficient for him to resume the habiliments of Arthur Wheatley and stow the apparel of the vanished George Loring in his bag. His imperial and moustache he still wore, for it was his intention to use depilatory measures in the cab which took him back to Park Lane, lest the complete transformation might prove too staggering for the hall porter. This time he himself took the parcel, a wooden box, clearly wrapped up in brown paper, to his cab, put it not on his own foot, but on the seat opposite, and genially told the driver to take him to Park Lane. Close behind him followed the taxicab containing the gentleman with the pince-nez, modest, secluded, and unobserved. And from a few doors off, he saw Mr. Arthur Waitley, burdened with the parcel he had brought from Wardour Street, stagger into his own house. His business seemed to be not yet finished, for, having seen him home, he drove back to an office in the city, and was at once taken in to see the head of the firm. His interview lasted about half an hour, and he left behind him, when he went, a very much astonished gentleman, over whose mobile face a succession of queer secret smiles chased one another like gleams of sunshine on a cloudy day. Excellent businessman though he was, he gave for the rest of the day but a tepid attention to his work. Arthur Waitley, meantime, was closeted with his gold. With the aid of a pair of nail scissors, for prudence counselled secrecy, he succeeded in raising the lid of the box and found it packed inside with smooth, discreet little sausages of white paper. A couple of these he unfolded, and from each flowed out a stream of clinking sovereigns. In each were a round hundred, and the little sausages were twenty in number. He put a liberal handful of gold in his pocket. He locked the rest into the safe that stood in the bedroom. And those two thousand pounds were somehow sweeter to him than his whole unnumbered fortune. They seemed to him the reward of a cleverness that was more peculiarly his own than that which had amassed so huge a harvest in South African mines and American options. They were doubly sweet, for they were both the fruit of secret criminal processes and had been wrung by terror out of his friend. He lunched out that day. His soul basked in the heaven of high animal spirits which had so long been lost to him, and in the stimulus which the last week had brought to him, he felt like a Perry who had regained paradise. Perhaps reaction would come, but for the present it held aloof, and in case it did, 
he could always, as he phrased it to himself as he walked lightly down Bond Street, apply the squeezers again to poor Peebles. The vocabulary, as well as the spirits of a schoolboy, had come back to him. Long-forgotten slang tripped off his tongue, and he examined shop windows with eager enthusiasm. There was a beautiful Charles II rat-tail spoon in a shop of old silver, and he entered and bought it, paying for it on the spot with fifteen of his newly acquired sovereigns. The purchase gave him more pleasure than any he had made for years. It was the fruit of his splendid stroke of blackmail. At another shop, he bought for five pounds a charming figure of a seagull in Copenhagen, China. Lord Peebles had a collection of this pale fabric, and his friend felt it would be a privilege to add to it. That also was paid for in gold, and after he had left each shop, a quiet man entered and conferred privately with the proprietor, leaving a companion outside who strolled after the millionaire. Returning home, he sent out a number of invitations for a dinner party in ten days' time. A royal princess had intimated that she would like to dine with him that night, and he included in his invitations Lord and Lady Peebles, both of whom were snobs of purest ray serene. Later on, he would ask them again to some similar function, for he felt that two such invitations would make full compensation for the anxiety he had caused. He did not regard the bagatelle of gold. That meant nothing to either of them. Then, after an hour with his beautiful collection of Greek coins, he dressed and went out to dinner. Lord Peebles was of the party, and the two cut into a table of bridge afterwards and played for a couple of hours, with luck distinctly against the newly created peer. Generally, his losses caused him exquisite agony. Being very rich, he could not bear to be ever so little poorer. But tonight he laid down a couple of ten-pound notes with a smile. "'I pay you, my dear Waitley,' he said. Fourteen pounds, is it not? I wonder if you can give me six. Waitley could, and did. You have had the worst of luck, he observed genially, but it's only a game. By the way, I hope I shall see you and your wife to dinner on the 23rd. I sent you an invitation this evening. Lord Peebles took up his change and looked rather carefully at each sovereign in turn, as if to question its genuineness. Curious thing, he said, each of these sovereigns is marked. There is a small capital P scratched on the field in front of St. George. He passed one over to Waitley, who felt as if some warning whistle had sounded remotely in his ears, but he contrived to speak in his natural voice and got up. I see, he said. I wonder what that means. Bates gave me them just before I came out. Indeed, said Lord Peebles negligently. Yes, the 23rd would be delightful. Are you going? Yes, I think I shall be off, said Waitley. He drove back to Park Lane, and without setting the pleasant peal of electric bells in the fan room, went straight to his bedchamber and got out the box which had thrilled him with such exquisite pangs of pleasure that morning. 
he stripped the paper off sausage after sausage of gold until his bed was piled with the precious metal. And on each shining disc, the same ominous discovery met his eye. Just in front of St. George's head on every one that he took up was scratched a small capital P. He slept far from well that night, for his mind, spinning madly like a whirling top, came into collision with a series of hard angles of uncomfortable circumstances. He told himself that it was inconceivable that his friend should have suspected him of the odious crime of blackmailing. But his friend evidently, when paying the ransom, had taken steps to trace its destination, with a view to the apprehension of the criminal. By a most strange coincidence, it was he, Arthur Waitley, who had supplied him with a clue, though he had had the presence of mind to say that Bates had given him these six pieces of evidence. Then, with a pang of alarm that made him sit bolt upright in bed, he remembered that there were four more of them in the shop where they sold china cats and seagulls, fifteen more in the silversmiths, where he had bought the Charles II spoon, and two others in the hair-cutting establishment in St. James's Street, where he had so lightly purchased a safety razor and a small India rubber sponge. At all costs, he must repossess himself of these. And how was that to be done? In this short summer night, there was scarcely time, even if he had had the tools to make a series of single-handed burglaries. Yet, if he did not get those accursed sovereigns back, he was letting the tap of evidence drip and drip and drip. What, again, was the use of those nineteen hundred and odd sovereigns on his bed if he could not put them in circulation without multiplying the evidence already in existence? The suspense of the last week, it is true, had been thrilling and delicious, but it appeared now that there were at least two sorts of suspense, and the other, though quite as thrilling, was not so pleasant. Sinking into an uneasy slumber, he dreamed of Skilly. Haggard and unshaven, in spite of the new safety razor, he was in Bond Street next morning early, with checkbook and banknotes in his pocket. The shop that dealt in old silver was only just open, and he went hurriedly in. I am Mr. Waitley, he said. Mr. Waitley of Park Lane. Uh, dear me, that's a very pretty tankard. A hundred pounds only. Please send it round to me to number 93. The fact is, a rather curious thing has happened. I bought a Charles II spoon here yesterday afternoon and paid for it in sovereigns. For certain curious... I may say family, reasons, I very much want those sovereigns back again. There are sentimental associations with them, you understand. Could you kindly let me have them back and take my cheque or banknotes in exchange? The shopman laughed. Walter, very curious thing happened here too, he said brightly. You'd hardly left the shop when a gentleman came in and asked if I could let him have any change for some banknotes. There were your sovereigns lying in the till and I gave him them all. I offered him five more as well, but after examining those, he said he did not want more than fifteen. Arthur Waitley couldn't suppress a slight groan. That was very precipitate of you, 
he said. What was the gentleman like? Was it a stout, dark-faced gentleman with yellowish hair and, and probably a fur coat? No, sir. A clean-shaven gentleman with a sharp sort of face. Not Peebles, said Waitley to himself as he skimmed out of the shop. It may still only be a coincidence. The shop of Danish China was open, and again he told his lame and unconvincing tale. Here again, the fever for gold had run riot yesterday afternoon, and a gentleman with a big moustache had taken five sovereigns and left a banknote. And his scuttling footsteps took him to the aseptic hairdressers. I am fighting single-handed against a positive gang of these wretches, was his bitter comment. But the aseptic hairdressers were still shut, and after ringing several wrong bells belonging to different floors, he gave up in despair and went home to the mocking splendour of number 93. A fresh-faced stable-boy was just laying down the straw in the street, whistling as he plied his nimble pitchfork. Waitley wondered whether he would ever whistle again. For an hour he sat there, lost in a scorching desert of barren thought. Visions of oakum and broad arrows flitted through his disordered mind, and every now and then he came to himself as some fresh circumstance of dawning significance wrapped on his brain. Once he hurried upstairs, remembering that the awful attire of George Loring still lurked in a locked cupboard of his bedroom, and he took the criminal's coat and stuffed it in the fire of his sitting-room, with the intention of burning all that costume which had seemed so exquisitely humorous. But the coat seemed impervious to flames, and it was not till a quarter of an hour later that he came downstairs again with roasted face. Even then there were trousers and shirt and patent leather boots to get rid of, and trouser buttons and the base metal of his gorgeous tie-pin would be found amid the ashes. And even when it was all done, he would only have destroyed one thread of evidence, leaving a network of imperishable circumstance unimpaired. Truly, there was a dark side to the game on which he had so lightly embarked, which the callous world could not ever so faintly appreciate, or would probably but imperfectly sympathise with even if it did. But for the sake of saving his sanity, he had to occupy himself with something, and after vainly attempting to follow the meaning of a leader in the times, he began reading, purely as a sad narcotic exercise, the agony column. And then he fairly bounded from his seat as the following met his eye. To George Loring, a packet of marked sovereigns, twenty-eight in number, will be forwarded to the above-named at any address, or given to a messenger who hands to Mr. Arthur Armstrong, resident for this day only at the Charing Cross Hotel, the sum of four thousand, in numbers and in words, in banknotes or bullion, he groaned aloud. It spells beggary, he said to himself. But I must have those sovereigns. But let me see first whether twenty-eight is the full tale of them. And he snatched up a piece of paper and wrote. To Lord Peebles, six. Silver Shop, fifteen. Copenhagen, China, five. 
hair-cutting place, two, total, twenty-eight. And at that, in spite of the ruinous expense, his heart bounded high within him. It was wiser not to appear himself. He had, so it struck him, appeared rather too frequently already. And sending for his secretary, he scrawled a cheque for £4,000 and bade him have it changed into banknotes and take it at once to the Charing Cross Hotel. There he would ask for a certain Mr Arthur Armstrong, who would give him a packet containing 28 marked sovereigns. It concerns a widowed aunt of mine, he added, and I cannot tell you more. Speed and secrecy are essential to save her from ruin. The zealous secretary was back within an hour, and with a sob of relief, Waitley, when he was alone, opened the packet he bought. Next moment, with a hollow groan, he spilled the contents all over the table. The sovereigns were marked indeed, but each of them had neatly incised on it, not a P, but an interrogation mark. Back went the zealous secretary again to explain that these were not the right ones, and if necessary, to implore Mr. Arthur Armstrong, for the sake of his mother, to give up the others. He was soon home again with the news that Mr. Arthur Armstrong had already quitted the hotel, leaving no address. Later on that abject day, there arrived a note from Lord Peebles saying that it was doubtful whether he could come to dinner on the 23rd. Events, at present private, might render it impossible. But he would like a game of golf at Richmond next day if Waitley was at liberty. Again, this proposal of a recreation detestable in itself and intolerable to one with shaking hand and trembling knees. Yet if Peebles had proposed a game of leapfrog, Waitley could not be so imprudent as to refuse, for at all costs he must keep up friendly relations. He had half a mind, but not the other half, to tell his friend that it was indeed he who had attempted to blackmail him, for a joke, and that the retaliation was getting beyond one. But it was not certain as yet that a confession was necessary. There was nothing to show that Lord Peebles had identified him with George Loring. It looked like it. It looked uncommonly like it. But what proof had he? Waitley, it is true, had given him half a dozen of his own marked sovereigns, and no doubt Peebles knew that he had expended others on Copenhagen china, Charles II silver, and American articles of toilet. But that was all. It was certainly a good deal. There's no need to dwell on his further anguish. The game of golf was a cruel parody of sport, and Peebles was in his most pompous mood, speaking of the House of Lords as we. At other times he spoke with strange persistence of the horrors of English prisons, and mentioned that he had been appointed visitor to Wormwood Scrubs. Waitley did not know with any accuracy where that was, but Peebles described exactly how you could get to it. Long sentence men stayed there. Another day he would see, or think he saw, a stranger watching his house. Sometimes a second would join him, and if one was clean-shaven and the other had a moustache, Waitley's heart would leap to his throat and creakingly pulsate there. His appetite failed him. His brushes were full of shed hair. Dew suddenly broke out on his forehead. 
and seven dreadful days passed. Then the end came. Lord Peebles telephoned to him, asking if he could see him on important business, and, of course, a welcoming affirmative was given. You appear far from well, my dear Waitley, he said, looking anxiously at him. Far from well. A little dieting, do you think? A little regular work? A little abstention from alcohol? Waitley gave a haggard glance out of the window. It was a foggy morning, and in the roadway he could but faintly distinguish a large black van which had approached noiselessly over the straw and now stood there. At that sight, there was no longer any doubt in his mind that Peebles had adopted the ruthless, archdiaconal attitude towards blackmailers and was going to have him arrested. But, harassed and unnerved as he was by a succession of sleepless nights and nightmare days, he still despised and refused to parley with the conventional narrowness of his accuser. Yet Lord Peebles still wore his pleased and secret smile, and it was not good manners to look like that in the act of committing a friend to a convict prison. Waitley drew himself up and spoke with wonderful steadiness and dignity. I see it's all up, he said, and that I shall soon get all the things you so feelingly recommend. But after all, I had a perfectly amazing week when I waited for your answer. I don't deny that you have given me an awful week, too, or that there are many rather cheerless weeks in front of me. It's no use my attempting to explain. You would never understand. Your soul doesn't rise above sovereigns. Lord Peebles came a step nearer him, looking vexed. For those remarks, he said, you deserve to be treated as... as you deserve. You don't seem to realise that I have had a week of the most thrilling enjoyment. You think nobody has a sense of humour except yourself. That attitude of yours has often annoyed me, for I have a remarkably keen one, and for pure aesthetic pleasure I have just had the week of my life. The fact that it was sugared with revenge hardly enhanced it at all, nor did the fact that whereas you got two thousand pounds out of me... I got four thousand out of you. You have been like a monkey dancing on a hot plate. I have been the hot plate. Waitley was scarcely listening. With chattering teeth, he looked at the huge, ominous van in the street, and Lord Peebles followed his gaze. You deserve that that van should be Black Maria, he went on in injured tones, to take you to Wormwood Scrubs, where I am visitor. Is, isn't it? asked Waitley. Lord Peebles peered into the fog. The harmless, necessary pantechnicon, he said. And then he subsided into a chair, and his great bulk began to shake with spasms of ungovernable laughter. And gradually the colour came back to Waitley's face, and shortly after an uncertain smile hovered on his mouth. And... Is it all over? he asked. Lord Peebles took a small sausage of sovereigns out of his pocket. I brought these along with me, he said. Please count them. They are all marked, and there are twenty-eight of them. I will exchange them with those you possess, marked with an interrogation point. You shall, said Waitley. God bless you. 
I was not certain when I came here, continued Lord Peebles, disregarding this interruption, whether I should put you out of your suspense or not. But your haggard and emaciated appearance, my dear fellow, decided me. Besides, I am two thousand pounds to the good, or nearly so, for I owe some small sum to detectives. If I did not have mercy on you, you would probably be too unwell to give your party for the princess on the 23rd, and I should be sorry to miss that. Otherwise, I might have let you had a week or so more of excitement. I had several other little notions, little tunes for you to dance to. You shall sit next to her, said Waitley, with quivering lips. End of section three.